Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. By your mercy and by your grace, we are here. And by your mercy and your grace, we are saved in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that gift. And as we talk this morning about the mystery of this gift, help us to see what a blessing it is to be in this covenant, this new covenant with you, recipients of the mystery revealed. Pray that we would understand you better this morning and that in knowing you better, we would love you more and desire you more and then we would glorify you more in being satisfied in you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So there was a a Christmas morning, a Christmas day when I was a kid, I'd say it's probably about middle school, uh, where my mom told me and my brother, my sister, I have two siblings, an older brother, my sister's in the middle, and then I'm the baby of the family. Um, my mom told us on this Christmas morning, you guys can open a stocking stuffer early if you say a particular word. And I'm not going to tell you what word that is. And we we're like, oh, what could it be, right? And we're like, it's got to be something like good. It's got to be a good word or, or something. So we or all day we're just like guessing what this word is and we're like saying all kinds of different things. What could mom, you know, what could it be that she, that she's not telling us that she would want us to say and then bless us for it. And so the whole day to us was a mystery. This phrase was a mystery. And I remember sitting at the breakfast counter and my mom just looks at me. She goes, Mark, you can go open a present. I was like, oh, did I just say it? When did I say it? What was it? You know, I got really excited. And she would, she would wait. After we say it, she would wait a little while to tell us we can go, have, go open our present because she didn't want us to, to correlate, you know, that I just made this statement and now I get a gift and then we would figure it out. So she would wait a little bit. What it turns out that the phrase was, thank you. <laughs> How many times a day do you say thank you? Uh, I learned that day, I don't say thank you enough. And now I say thank you all the time. And I think that's a big part of it, learning that. But on that day, there was this mystery. There was this something hidden that I knew was good and a benefit and a blessing and enjoyable, but I didn't know what it was. I think that the beauty of mystery is the anticipation of something joyful being revealed to you. Like knowing there's a mystery is fun because what you're waiting for is the revelation of the mystery. What is the answer? What is the mystery? If you've ever read a mystery novel or watch a movie, mystery novels are better than mystery movies because the mystery novel you can anticipate for longer because they take longer to read than two hours typically in like a movie. And so you're reading this mystery novel and the whole time you're like, what? What is going on? What, what is going to come out of this? What is this mystery? I read a really good book uh, just last year that was just this kind of like a sci-fi mystery. And the whole time I'm like, what is going to happen? And my wife read it too. And when we both finished, when I finished first, and I was like, you're not going to believe this book. And she was in the middle of reading. She's like, I know it's so good. And then when she finished it, I just couldn't wait for her to finish so we could talk about it. And once the mystery is revealed, it's like, oh, not only was it Fun to anticipate this mystery, but once it was revealed, it was like worth the wait. And that's what a good mystery is. And there is no better mystery in the history of the world than God's mystery that he hid from his people for thousands of years. 
And that is what we're going to talk about today. This entire text is centered around the mystery of the gospel. But it's more than just the mystery of the gospel. There's so many tenets to it. So many that we actually don't have time to get really get fully into it today. But I want to explore that a little bit. So I'm going to tell you what the mystery is. And then what we'll see from this text are two immediate applications of this mystery that we can apply in our lives today. So last week, uh, Christian preached on verses 24 through 25 and kind of gave us that, like, just that initial uh, motivation from Paul to say what he's going to say here. And what I want to do is, even though Christian already preached those verses, I just want to go back in them and read through it to help us understand what verses 26 through 29 are really about. So we're going to start at the end of verse 24. And Paul says, The church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's argument kind of flows like this. He's writing to the church, and the church is made up of two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. And to the church, God made Paul a minister, and as a minister to the church, Paul had a very specific role in the initiation and development of the early church. And Paul's role in the church was specifically, what he says here, is to make the word of God fully known. So what that means, that idea of fully known, is Paul, has, Paul knows truth, God has truth, that Paul reveals, or that God reveals to Paul, and then Paul communicates that truth, he reveals the mystery, he makes it known, he opens up what was hidden for ages, and he, and he reveals to the church the full knowledge of God, or all that God wants us to know, and he makes the word of God fully known, and it becomes fully known to us in the letters that Paul is writing. So the early church doesn't have all these letters that we have today. They can't go to the Christian bookstore and buy a brand new Bible and just have all the letters and all the books of the Bible collected in one. They had the Old Testament writings, but the New Testament had not been finished, and apostles were writing New Testament letters and gospels, and it had not all been collected yet. And what is part of the collection is the letters that Paul's writing to these churches. So when they get these letters, this is brand new information. This is new revelation from God. And this is how God makes his word fully known, by giving them what we now today call his word. So how does Paul make the word of God fully known? By being the one who introduces to the world something special. And this something special is, in Paul's words, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. So because of Paul's ministry, that mystery is now revealed to the saints, to the church, in this letter, and in other letters. So the thing that was a mystery to God's people for thousands of years and through many generations, now in the first century, through the church, through Paul's writings, through his ministry, through the apostles, now becomes known and revealed only to one specific group of people, the church. 
He calls them the saints. The saints are believers. The Greek word for saints is hagios. It means holy ones. So those who are in Christ. And those who are in Christ are the church. The Jews didn't get to know all of this in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant. Only those who are in the New Covenant, the church, believers in Christ, get to know this mystery. And that's important because of what the mystery is. So what is the mystery? At the end of verse 27, Paul tells us what the mystery is. He says that the mystery is Christ in you. So what is important to understand about this mystery and about this phrase, Christ in you, is that the word Christ is not the focal point here. Because if you just glance over this, you say the mystery is Christ in you, then we kind of maybe just quickly interpret that as, oh, the mystery is the gospel, that, that believers have Jesus in them. That's not really what Paul is talking about. The emphasis is not on Christ. The emphasis in this phrase is on the word you. Not because the gospel is about you, because it isn't. You're included, but it's not about you. The gospel is about God's glory through your salvation. Your, you being saved is the means by which God gets his glory. And you being satisfied by God in the gospel and getting the greatest gift ever brings you joy and makes you happy. And in that joy and happiness in the gospel, God is most glorified in you. And so you are certainly a huge part of the gospel. Without you, without me, without the sinners, there's no gospel. So of course we're a part of it. But the priority of the gospel is ultimately, just like everything else in life, for God's glory. So though the emphasis is on the word you, it's not that the emphasis is on you. And let me explain. The mystery is that the Jews didn't know that salvation would soon be available to all people. At this point, as the new, as, right after Christ comes to earth, lives his life, dies on the cross, rises from the grave, and ascends to heaven, and then this is, this is all new information. The gospel's brand new. We're 2,000 years later. It's not new anymore. This is old news. I was like a little kid when I, when I, I, grew, I was born going to church. I've been going to church my whole life. It never has felt new to me. I've always known church. I've always known about Jesus. I've always known the gospel. I got saved when I was six years old. So like, I read the Bible sometimes and I, I discover plenty of new things all the time. Uh, but the idea of like the gospel and Jesus died for everybody, you know, or like any, you know, anyone who believes can be saved, like the gospel's available for the whole world, like that idea, that's like not news to me. It's probably not news to you. But it's news to people in the first century. They didn't know this, especially the Jews, because the Jews have spent thousands of years waiting for this promised Messiah to show up. And when this promised Messiah shows up, he's going to conquer the Roman Empire. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to sit on a throne. He's going to reign over everybody. He's going to give us political rule. He's going to reestablish our land as Jews. Israel's going to get their land back and their power back, and they're going to rule the world with the Messiah, and he's going to take care of everything, and all of our problems in this life will be gone. That's not what happens. Because the Jews 
had only a mystery. They had fragments and pieces of a mystery that God was revealing piece by piece and day by day and moment by moment and story by story. And the, the, the picture wasn't clear to the Old Covenant Jews, to the Jews in that Old Covenant. Because the mystery was that there's going to be a new covenant with a new Christ. Or with Christ. With a new leader. With a new initiator. A new enactor of this new covenant. And that is the mystery. That the gospel doesn't just say Jews get saved. The gospel says anybody who believes in the Son can be saved. From every tribe and every nation and every tongue and all people groups, anybody can be saved. And I think for people like us, we just think to ourselves like, yeah, well, like I've known that for a long time. Like the gospel's for the whole world. That's why we are the church and we evangelize. Yeah, that's, that's not news to us, but it's news to them. It's mind-blowing to them that this idea that this gospel has now become something for anybody and everybody, this God that the Gentiles hear about was the God of the Jews. So there are Jews who don't like it because they're like, whoa, 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 you don't get to include everybody. The gospel, you know, salvation is for the Jews, God, not for everybody. And God's like, that was the mystery. That was the mystery that I finally showed you. Like for all these years ago, like, oh, what's going on? When's the Messiah coming? What's all this new covenant talk about? And you see new covenant talk all throughout the old covenant and the old testament. What is this all about? And then Jesus shows up. He says, I'm what it's all about. I, I'm the initiating a new covenant, and it's a better covenant. Hebrews 8, 4 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. That's the mystery. There's a better promise and a better covenant, and that covenant is available to anybody who believes in the gospel, who believes in Jesus Christ. So the mystery is that salvation is now available to all people, all tribes, and all tongues, and all nations, and all languages, and all distinct people groups in the whole world. So when Paul says that the mystery is Christ in you, he's saying that the mystery is now revealed, and the mystery is that you are the Gentiles. That's the emphasis of that little phrase, Christ in you, that the mystery is Christ can now be in the Gentiles. It's not just exclusive to the Jews. God is not exclusive to the Jews. He's exclusive to his people. And in the Old Covenant, his people were the Jews. They were chosen and selected by God, by his grace, to be his people. And then in Christ, a new covenant forms, and anybody who believes in Christ, regardless of nationality or any background or ethnicity or history or culture, can be part of this new covenant. And God suddenly becomes massively inclusive. It's not as though he wasn't also inclusive in the Old Testament because he was, but not in the way that the New Covenant develops. And so all this basically just kind of sounds like a long way of saying, hey, anyone can be saved. I could have just started with that, right? Like, hey, anyone can be saved. And you've been like, yeah, we know. And that would have been it. We could have moved on. But I want you to see the beauty of how God develops mystery throughout history. Because we're 2,000 years after the Old Covenant. We're 2,000 years since this covenant in Christ, this new covenant in Christ began. So again, this doesn't feel like news to us, but we can see how God develops this mystery over time. For thousands of years, God was revealing the mystery just piece by piece and 
moment by moment, and building anticipation. Just like, you know, when you read that mystery novel and you're like, what is going to happen? God's building anticipation. Little, little snippets about a coming Messiah and a future king and little snippets about little imageries and, and, and analogies and metaphors of the gospel to come just pieced in slightly here and there. And then we read like 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and we see that the prophets who are making these prophecies, what they're prophesying about is something in the future. That prophecy is not necessarily, not primarily, those Old Testament prophecies that those prophets are making aren't primarily for those Old Testament people. It's the, the prophecies about Christ, the prophecies for the church. God is throughout history just dropping little hints here and there, and, 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 and he has this beautiful masterpiece that to him is not a mystery, but to us, we're just, we can't see it. And there's a reason for it. Because the revelation of it has to be amazing. The revelation of that mystery has to be mind-blowing. And nothing blows your mind more than Jesus Christ. His birth, God himself coming down into the human flesh, humbling himself. Have you read Philippians chapter 2? Oh, my goodness. It's probably one of the best, one of the best chunks of text in the entire Bible, this this. God himself, the Son of God, living in perfect, full, eternal, past, harmony, glory, joy, and satisfaction in God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, living in holy love and harmony, needing nothing else, not needing you, not needing a world, not needing a universe. They don't need anything, but they decide, he decides, I am going to be more glorified. There is more glory for God, for myself, in this action. Creating a world, ordaining sin as a means to present people with grace. Because there's no grace without sin. So he ordained sin for the purpose to show us the, the glory of his grace, which we see in Ephesians 1. And in doing so, God gets his most glory through the gospel. God builds this mystery throughout the years of dealing with the Jews. This, this, this reality of this Jesus, this, this man, God himself, coming down into human flesh, humbling himself, taking steps down from eternal kingship and the presence of God his Father to Humanity, that's a huge step of humility, into flesh, into a womb, and then into birth and into this world in human flesh, crying and fully and completely dependent on his human mother who is a sinner. That's what God himself becomes. And that step down in humility is unbelievable and that is that is mind-blowing and again to us you're like yeah well i already know this this isn't like mind-blowing i've been hearing it at church my whole life yeah to them it's mind-blowing and if it doesn't still kind of blow your mind then i want to encourage you to have your mind blown all right so everybody get your mind blown this is amazing i know you know it i know it's not news to you if you're already a believer but this gospel reality is unbelievable this mystery has finally just burst out of the scene and burst through the doors and god's thousands of years of hiding what he's doing and not revealing the secret now just unveiled in christ and then in his human flesh lives a life where he actually has to grow up 
and learn. We see this in Luke that, that it says that Jesus had to grow and learn in wisdom and maturity. Right? He had to become, go from a baby boy to a toddler to a preteen to a teenager and then to a young man and into a grown man. And then into ministry. He lives, and then now through, through all those years, no sin, just perfection for you. That he lives for you. And then as he gets into, so he's already been humbled from eternal deity and the presence of God, perfect joy and glory and holiness, and then down into the human flesh and the struggles of life and having to live. And just the, just the, just the simplest things. Needing to drink water, that's new for the Son of God. Needing to eat food, that's new for the Son of God. Having to walk 10 miles to the next town, that's new for the Son of God. Having to wash your feet, ugh, new for the Son. But he does it without complaining, like I would, right? It's all new for the Son. It's all, it's all humiliating to the Son of God. It's humbling because he shouldn't have to wash his feet he shouldn't have to need water. He shouldn't have to need his mother. But he chooses to for you and for the glory of his father. And it's humiliating in the sense that he's humbled to this place of a God who suddenly becomes a man and in his humanity, he's got needs. God doesn't need, but now he does. And it's not that God needs, it's that the human Jesus Christ has needs. And so God himself experiences the human reality of needing. That's humiliating to a God who does not need. And not only that, but he takes even a further step down in humility. By preaching truth from town to town, healing people and casting out demons and doing all kinds of unbelievable, life-changing, earth-shattering ministry, everybody knew who Jesus was. Everybody. The whole modern world of that time knew the name of Jesus. He had thousands of followers. His name was spreading from town to town. And people hated it. So they pursued him and they killed him. And they took him, jailed him, whipped him, beat him, put him, mocked him, put a fake crown on his head, made him bleed, struck him over and over, made him carry a cross. That is humiliation. Hung, hung him on that cross and watched him slowly die. That is humiliation. The God of the universe who created the very people who are killing him, that is humiliation. And he is completely humbled and then he dies on the cross revealing the real purpose of this mystery. Not just the Messiah is here because even when the Messiah showed up, the Old Testament thinking Jews, the people of the Old Covenant, the Jews are sitting there going, if he is the Messiah, he's going to now restore our land and our earth and you know, like take over and rule the world and we're going to have, he's here for the people who believe Jesus was the Messiah. They're like, alright, let's go Jesus. When are we going to take over Rome and kick him out of our land and just kind of like own this place again? And Jesus is like, that's not how this is going to work. There's more humiliation that's needed for my glory. But the Jews who didn't like him are saying, he's not even the Messiah. And so they kill him. And when he dies on the cross, and then is buried, and then rises from the grave, the fullness of that mystery is finally unveiled. The mystery is really unveiled when Jesus is born. And then when he lives his life, and then when he does his ministry, it's just that, that mystery is unfolding more and more and more and more. And then he dies on the cross and rises from the grave, and boom, the mystery is open. 
It's fully revealed. Believe in the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave and you will be saved. That's Romans 10, 9. That's the mystery that you can have Christ in you and it's not just for the Jews anymore but anybody who God calls to believe and believes. And the call goes out to the whole world and anyone who believes is saved and they get Christ in them. And so this, this beautiful revelation of this mystery is astounding when you think to the, the years past and the way that God revealed moments of this gospel truth over time in the past that the Jews didn't really understand. And we know that because in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, we see that there's like this confusion about what's really being said, but the Spirit reveals it to the prophets and they make these prophecies, but the Jews in the Old Covenant didn't really see what was going on. They're just getting fragments. You know, it's like when you're reading that mystery novel and you're like, okay, this guy is here and this guy's doing that and this guy's doing this. What is, go- I gotta put, piece this together. You know, you're trying to figure it out when you're reading that book and you're like, what is the mystery, really? I mean, what's the solution? And that's what Jews did for thousands of years, getting fragments and pieces and metaphors and stories and putting them together to try to figure out what this mystery is. I'll give you an example. Numbers chapter 20, verse eight. God says to Moses, they're in the land, they're in the, in the desert, wandering the desert, the people are thirsty. They complain. Hey, Moses, did you bring us out here to die of thirst? That seems, we don't like this. And Moses goes to God and says, hey God, they're gonna stone me to death. Can you help me out? These people need water. So God tells Moses, Numbers 20, verse eight, take the staff, that's the staff that he used to separate the waters, and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, And listen to what he says, tell, tell the rock. He means speak to the rock. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So then look at what Moses does a couple verses later, verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and what does he do? Struck the rock with his staff twice. So God doesn't like this because God told Moses, speak to the rock, and Moses struck the rock. And then verse 12, God said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, stop. What? (laughs) If you sin, do you ever think to yourself, I don't believe in God? Probably not. You're probably more like, "Um, ooh, God, I'm sorry. Right? Like, oh, forgive me. Darn it. Didn't want to do that. I keep sinning. Sorry. And God's saying that when you don't obey me, you don't believe in me. Now, he's not saying you suddenly became unsaved. Not at all. What he's saying is ultimately that the root of every sin is disbelief. Not believing in the consequences of your sin. Not believing in the root of sin. Not not really believing all the realities about who God is and what he says and what he does. When we sin, we're acting in disbelief. And that's exactly what God reveals to Aaron and Moses. You didn't just not do what I said. You didn't trust me. You don't believe me. Your faith was weak. I told you specifically to tell that rock. I'm very clear. And this is, we do this a lot too. We get commands from God and we're like, we kind of take that command and we kind of use it how we want. Like, oh, he, he says to do this, but like, this is good enough, right? 
I mean, whether I tell the rock or hit the rock, what's the difference? Water comes out. I'm still trusting God that water's going to come out of a rock, which is a pretty big deal, right? God's like, I, th- no, I was very specific. I told you to speak to it, and you hit it. And so what's the consequence? Because you did not believe in me, this is verse 12, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this people You shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses and Aaron did not go to the promised land that they had been leading the people to for 40 years because of this sin. Because God said, speak to the rock, and they chose to hit it instead. Such a small thing. Such a minor detail to literally lose your entire life's ministry over. Dedicates himself to the people of Israel, suffers greatly. He's ridiculed for years, dragging these obstinate people through the desert, feeding them, praying for them, begging God for help for them. And all they do is go, eh, Moses, we don't like you. Eh, why are you doing that? And they just complain and complain. And he's like, okay, God, give us food. God gives them food. Eh, I don't like this food. Oh, God, now they're complaining. Now they're thirsty. Oh, I don't like this water. I don't, I'm thirsty. Would you bring us out here to die? Just, just whining and complaining the whole time. And Moses is suffering so hard and still faithfully leads these people to the promised land and just shows them day by day by day faithfulness to God. And these people have kids who get to go into the promised land. And Moses after all these years of faithful, dedicated service to God and to his people and leading millions, there's probably two and a half million Jews in the desert. Personally, I think leading a church of, you know, like 50 or 100 is, uh, is really hard. <laughs> if there were two and a half million of you, I don't think I could do it. All the... All those years of faithful service, and God's like, okay, tell the rock to spit out water. And Moses is like, bang, not going, you're not going to the promised land. Like, wait, what, just, just at one, did you not see what I've done for the last 40 years, God? And now you're going to take me out of the promised land? So why? Why is this such a big deal? Because that rock is a big deal. Because what God told Moses to do was a picture of the gospel. And what Moses did was not. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, he's talking about, I'm actually going to go back to verse 1 and just read that so you can get a little context. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's the cloud that followed the Israelites through the land. And all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So what God told Moses to do was speak to the rock. Not strike it, because the rock was Christ. And so what Moses did is he preemptively revealed the suffering of Christ. 
Now, do the Jews are sitting there watching water pour out of a rock going, mm, you shouldn't have struck it because we know the Messiah is going to be struck on the cross. And, you know, like he's preemptively hitting the, the rock. And now we know too soon that Christ will suffer a death. No, they don't know that's going on. But we do. And, this, and, and, and Jesus revealed it to Paul. And that's why Paul tells us that that's the problem with what Moses did. Is he struck the rock. God has a mystery. And that mystery is in God's perfect timing. And God is timing that mystery just a particular way. And he tells Moses to reveal a portion of the gospel by speaking to the rock, whom is Christ, and Christ will provide. Instead, what Moses does is he reveals another element of the gospel, the suffering of Christ by striking the rock. And God's like, that part of the mystery is not supposed to come out yet, even though God ordains Moses' disobedience because it's part of the gospel. It's still, he gets punished for it and doesn't get to go to the promised land because God is very particular about the way in which he reveals his mystery throughout time with the Jews. So just a tiny little minor detail in a little story in Israel's history, just one of the thousands of fragments of the mystery being revealed piece by piece. God takes this very seriously. So God has carefully orchestrated revelation of his gospel and it becomes then fully revealed when Christ himself is born, lives, dies, suffers and then is resurrected. And that reality about God offering salvation to everybody, to all nationalities, all tribes, all people groups in heaven, there will be a representation of every people group there. Because that's what it says in Revelation chapter 7, that, there was, that, that John looks and he sees all tribes and tongues and nationalities and people groups. All people groups will be represented. Meaning every people group is going to have people in it who are saved. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or not. Doesn't matter about your nationality. Doesn't matter what culture you were raised in. Doesn't matter what you were born believing or raised into. If you accept Christ, you're saved. And that is that mystery. Finally, that's what God has been preaching. God had been preaching piece by piece, day by day, year by year, through the Jews forever, and now is fully exposed. And that is exposed to the ministry of the apostles. So the mystery is not just that believers have Christ in them. The mystery is that the Gentiles get to have Christ in them. The mystery is that you, non-Jews, get to be saved. And it, like I said, it, you're sitting there going, yeah, well, this isn't like news to us, but man, this is, this, if this isn't real, we go to hell. If God doesn't orchestrate thousands of years of details then it can't come to fruition the way that it does and you can't have salvation. So yeah, every detail does matter. Yes, Moses, it does matter that you hit the rock instead of speaking to it like God commanded. And the reason is because God is in the details. And if one detail is off three, 4,000 years ago, that is going to, that detail is going to become more and more obvious and more and more problematic. It's like I tell kids as a basketball coach. I watch these kids shoot, and their form is a little off. Like their hand is just maybe their elbows dropped a little bit or their hand's off to the side. And I'm saying, I tell them, I go, you know, your, your hand 
comes forward just a, just a little bit and should go up. And that inch, that one inch you think might not make a difference at that basket. But from here it's an inch. But when you let that ball go and it travels 15 feet in the air to the basket, one inch becomes a foot and a half. And so every detail in your shot form matters if you want to make baskets in a basketball game. Same reality or principle applies to how God has revealed the mystery throughout time. Every detail matters because through time, all those details need to start to interconnect and intertwine and work together to reveal this awesome mystery, which is you get to have Christ in you. So, if you're a believer and you're sitting here and you go, well, I already have Christ in me, so what's the point? Is this just information from my brain? It is, first of all, because I want you to see how awesome God has worked for your, on your behalf and for your sake throughout the history of the world to save you. But also, there are immediate applications in this text that Paul actually gives us himself. In verses 28 through 29, right after Paul explains this mystery, talks about this mystery, now he gives us some immediate application. So in verses 28 through 29, there are two things that the mystery produces. Number one, evangelism. Verse 28, he says, him we proclaim. That's the first words Paul says. After talking about the mystery, he then says, him we proclaim. Proclamation of him is needed for the sake of the mystery. If it's a mystery and no one tells you what the mystery is, then what's the point? If you don't proclaim the mystery, then it stays a mystery. Does that make sense? Right? If you don't proclaim the mystery, it stays a mystery. People need to know what the mystery is. That doesn't mean that unbelievers in your life who you talk to have to understand that you know, all these details about how God had orchestrated a ministry throughout thousands of years and then how it was revealed in Christ. They don't have to know all of those details in order to be saved, but you do if you're going to evangelize to people who are lost. You need to know the mystery. You need to know that God has worked out for them a beautiful, you know, five, six thousand year plan to bring people to Christ, to bring that one person you're talking to to Christ. So it is him that we proclaim. Because the mystery is revealed, now we can proclaim it. So though it's no longer a mystery to us, it is a mystery to the lost world, and it is good news to the lost world. And we are God's ambassadors on earth being sent out to spread the revelation of his mystery that they can be saved. But as you, as you think about what evangelism is, I want you to think about something uh, Francis Schaeffer once said, he was asked, if you had an hour on a train with someone who's not saved, how would you spend the hour sharing the gospel with them? And Francis Schaeffer said, I'd spend 45 minutes on the problem and 15 minutes on the solution. People don't need to know anything about Jesus if they don't know they need Jesus. What good is Jesus to someone who thinks they don't need salvation? They need to know they're sinners. They need to know that their life is destined for hell without Christ. They need to know that they were born, or as David says in Psalm 51, conceived into sin, that everybody's conceived into sin, and the consequences for their sin and their non-holiness is that God has to judge 
because he's just. And in his justice, he must condemn sin. And if this person is wearing that sin, they're condemned with it. And the only way to not be condemned is to put on righteousness instead. And the only way to get righteousness is in Christ. So they have to believe. But first, before they believe in Christ, they have to know there's a problem. So that's just a little tactic in your evangelism tool belt as you communicate the gospel of people in your life. Just realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't going to mean much to them if they don't realize that they need him. So we have to help people understand their need for Christ. And again, to them, that's a mystery. They don't know that. That's what your job is. That's the application of this text. You know the mystery now. Why? Because somebody in your life said, Him we proclaim to you. And you believed. And if they didn't, you wouldn't be saved. But they did. And now it's our role to continue and carry on that mystery, to proclaim Christ to lost people. And ultimately, both number one and two, but this, the, the two things that mystery, the mystery produces is growth. Number two, spiritual growth. And the reason I say both of them are growth is because what evangelism is, is kingdom growth. God is all about growth. And so when we evangelize and people get saved, what grows? God's kingdom. More people are saved. And this is why I've said a thousand times from this pulpit, I'm not interested in church growth. I'm not interested in getting more people at Grace Church. I'm interested in kingdom growth because that's what God's interested in. More people getting saved. Right? And so believers moving from one church to another is part of the reality of our life and that's fine. But that isn't kingdom growth. That's just church growth. That's local church growth. And it helps us serve the kingdom growth. But ultimately, what we want to see is lost people get saved, and then we bring them to church, and we bring them to life groups, and they get discipled by us, and they learn the Bible, and they grow. That's the whole purpose of Him we proclaim. Evangelism is kingdom growth. Now take it out of kingdom mentality, and let's bring it home to you. Right into your lap, into your life, into what you are experiencing, and here is the reality. Spiritual growth is what we're after. That's what Paul is aiming at. Spiritual growth. Verse 28. He says, Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's spiritual growth. Not everyone is called to warn and teach. See what Paul says here? Warning and teaching everyone. He's not saying, Hey, everybody, all of you, just go out and start warning and teaching people. That's not what he's saying. In fact, James 3, 1 is pretty clear. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So this is not a call that all of you should go teach. It's a call to something else. Your teachers and your pastors and your elders and your husband is your teacher. And their calling is to teach you with all wisdom and to warn you of sin. And to reprove and rebuke and correct and teach and warn. And that activity of warning and teaching serves a purpose. And that purpose is your application in verse 28. This is what Paul is after in you. He says that we may present everyone mature 
in Christ. My role as your elder and your pastor and your teacher has one primary objective. Other than the like obvious, always highest priority, glorifying God and being satisfied in him. But my objective as your pastor and in your life, our relationship has a primary objective. And that objective is your spiritual growth into maturity in Christ. That's why you're here, right? I mean, if you're here for any other reason, right? So we could say, I'm here to glorify God and be satisfied in him. Yeah, well, how did you become satisfied in him? Because stagnant non-growth is not satisfying. Imagine you've got a, an eight-year-old child. Five years later, they're 13. They haven't grown an inch. They still look like they're eight. Nothing has changed about their features or their face or their size. Their brain hasn't developed. They're not more mature emotionally mentally or physically would you think there's a problem yeah you might not notice it for the first year and then the second year you're gonna go he's, he's kind of small <laughs> third year fourth year, you're gonna go i think we got a problem everyone around him is growing and our child is not growing at all that's a problem not growing is an obvious problem stagnant non-growth is not good so my objective, my role, as Paul gives us in the first part of verse 28, warn you and teach you with all wisdom. Why? So you would grow. So that I could present you, that Jesus could present you to himself as mature in him. I can warn you. I can teach you. But I can't make you grow. I, I cannot make you study. I cannot make you read. I cannot make you pray. I cannot make you humble, I cannot make you reverent, and I cannot make you obedient. That's on you. That's your role. I can teach you. I can point you. I can guide you. I can direct you. I can counsel you. I can help you. I can serve you. I can love you. There's a lot of things I can do. There's a lot of things that you can do for each other in all of that as well. But as my role as a, a teacher, because Paul's talking about himself in verse 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, he's talking about his role as a leader in the church. So that's specifically to the leaders in the church. And the purpose of your elders here is to grow you spiritually into your maturity in Christ. And if that's not happening, then what is the point? That process can be hard for pastors and for elders and for teachers because people can sometimes be a little stubborn and foolish and careless and defiant. So can pastors and elders. We can all be that way. We're humans. Sin still is working in our flesh to manipulate us and fool us and trick us. And we fall for it a lot. And we become defiant and careless and foolish and when we're taught and preached to, and led, and guided, and loved, and served, we don't use it. And that is why Paul says in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Notice the verbs that Paul uses to describe the ministry of his warning and teaching. He says he toils, and he struggles, and with all this energy. It's hard. 
I can say this from experience. It's not easy to carry the burden of other people's spiritual maturity on your shoulders. Parents, you know what it feels like. You carry the burden of your children's spiritual maturity, not just their spiritual maturity, their maturity in general. You carry the burden of who they are as a child on your shoulders. You know that weight. And for elders in the church, that number is probably a little bit more than whether you, I don't know, you have like three or eight kids. Uh, churches tend to have a lot more than three to eight people. And so elders have to carry as shepherds the burden of the spiritual well-being of their people on their shoulders. That can be hard. That's what Paul's saying. It's a toil, and it's a struggle, and it takes a lot of energy. And like Paul, I can say, I love it. Because if I didn't love it, I would have quit a long time ago. <laughs> because it can be really difficult. But God also made me, I mean, I, I can't say this about every pastor, but specifically for me, he made me really like people. And, like, I just love being around people. Like, when I walk in this room and I see all you guys here, I'm like, ah, friends! Like, I get really excited. I'm like, hey, dude, shaking hands, hugging people. Just to see you again. Didn't get to see you this week. Like, that's just, I love it, right? That's just the way God wired me. And I'm excited about you guys. I love you guys. I love preaching. I didn't get to preach last week. Christian preached. And, man, I tell you, it was great to get just, like, a break. Just one week off of having to write a sermon is a wonderful, enjoyable you know, kind of like break from that activity. Um, but this whole week, I'm just like, ah, I just want to preach. I just want to go to church. I just want to see these people. I just want to tell them all these things, wonderful things I learned and heard and saw. And they're going to love it. And they're all going to high five me when it's over because it's going to be so much fun. And it's going to be so, <laughs> just like so excited about you guys. I really am. And, and I'm excited about God's word. And I'm excited about you getting to hear God's word. And, and in moments like that, the idea of toil and struggle and energy just kind of subsides and it just feels very enjoyable to be your friend and to be your pastor and to be your shepherd and you serve me and I serve you and it's wonderful. But a majority of the ministry is a lot of time spent helping people deal with their sin. Sin is a problem. So it's a lot of problem work and it becomes very heavy and weighty and hard and difficult and arduous and painful and toil and struggle. So I understand what Paul's saying. And it's hard because people resist growth. And I don't know if that's necessarily intentional. I, I think, and I don't think any of you, probably most of you, wouldn't say, I intentionally do not want to grow. I think it's just the nature of our sinful nature that we resist growth in a lot of ways because it hurts. It's a chisel and it hurts. And this is why Hebrews 13, 17 is in the Bible. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those, listen to what they have to do, who will give an account. So your pastors and elders will have to give an account for your spiritual well-being. One day, I have to stand up before God and I have to give an account for my life, for my wife's life, for my children's life, and for everyone in this room. And this is why the author of Hebrews goes on to say this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Essentially what he's saying is, don't make it harder on your pastor than it already is, right? Okay? And listen, guys, I know you're not like, how can we make life hard on Pastor Mark? Yeah? Like, I know that's not at all what you're doing. You're, you're people, you have sin, and you struggle, and you make bad decisions, just like I do, and we make them. And, and when you do, 
That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here, to serve you, to love you, to help you, to pull you up out of the, the mud, wash you off, clean you off, show you Christ, speak righteousness to you, pray for you, help you, heal you, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and then we go hand in hand forward together toward righteousness. So, why, why do people defy spiritual growth? Why do they defy their leaders who teach them truths and then they hear these truths and then don't do them? Why do you listen to me preach and then hear what I preach and then not do it? Like, I'm not coming down hard on you. What I'm just saying is, you all, you've all done it. I've done it. We all do it. It's hard. I mean, to live out what's preached every week, every day for the rest of the week, that's hard to do. But that's the calling. To take these truths, apply them to your life, hear the truth, learn about who God is, learning about God, who God is, understanding him better, understanding the fullness of his character and his nature, which is my greatest ambition in life, which is to teach you the full nature and character of God. And the more you understand who he is, the more it changes the way you think about who God is. And the way you think about God is it directly, directly impacts the way you live. And so I want to change the way you live by changing the way you think. And that's my God-given burden. And I love it. And I love you. And I love to teach you and help you and guide you and counsel you and serve you. I love it. I absolutely love it. So when I say, like, it's a burden to carry your spiritual well-being, I don't mean like it's a, ugh, I don't want to do that today. It, it's a burden in that it's heavy. I enjoy it, but it's weighty. I also like going to the gym, right? But I kind of don't because it's hard, but I love it. I mean, am I sitting there going, I love lifting heavy things in the sky for no reason at all, right? Like, no one really likes it, but you need to do it. And when you do it, you actually get like a, a, a chemical boost in your brain that says, you like this a little bit. And then you get a little stronger. And you're like, oh, I kind of like looking a little stronger. I think I do like this activity, actually. And that's what it's like to carry the burdens of people spiritually. It's enjoyable. It's a burden in that it's weighty, but it's fun. And I love it. Even when it's exhausting or even when it's hard and even when it's really difficult, it's still a joy. That's my God-given burden. Here's yours. Though God has chosen teachers to help you mature in Christ, and though your leaders will have to give an account for your spiritual maturity, that does not alleviate you from your responsibility to grow spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. You are still fully and completely responsible for your own spiritual growth and for your own sanctification. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We tend to think of the word salvation as referring to that moment we got saved. The word salvation encapsulates three ideas, okay? Three parts to, to, to the word salvation. Justification, which is when you get saved, that moment when you believe in Christ and you're saved. That's your justification. Sanctification, which is the process of spiritual growth in which your salvation becomes evident. And then glorification, which is the end result of your sanctification. So when he uses the word salvation in here, he's not saying go get yourself saved. He's saying now that you're saved, work out that salvation in what is called sanctification. So what he's saying essentially is time to grow. If you're saved, now the rest of your life is growing in that salvation. 
That's not necessarily proving that you're saved, because if you're genuinely saved, you don't have to force yourself to prove it to anybody. But if you are genuinely saved and you have been justified, then the product of the Spirit at work in you is spiritual growth and sanctification. And it all starts with your desire. I see this in counseling all the time. I can tell you, someone comes to me and they need counseling, I can tell you if it's going to work, if they're going to change, or if they're not going to change. It's really evident up front. It's all about whether they want it or not. If a couple comes to me and they're both having, struggling and, and, and they both want to be healthy and good for each other, it's going to work. 100% of the time. In my experience, it's always worked. I mean, you've got one couple going, I want to fix this. The other one going, I don't like that person. I'm like, yeah, this might not work. I can only do so much. Only God can heal that. And, and so it's all about desire. People who want to change, want to grow, want to mature, they do. So it starts with desire. You have to want this. You have to want to be like Christ. And if you have the Spirit of God in you, how could you not want to be more like Christ? It starts with desire. You have to want to grow. You have to want to mature into Christ-likeness. That is half the battle. And once you get there, the rest is a lifetime of ups and downs that God ordains as his chisel to form you into the likeness of Christ. So what I'm telling you is don't resist what you're taught. Don't resist your leaders. Don't resist your elders and your teachers and your pastors. Receive them. Receive their teaching. Receive their guidance. Receive their counsel. Receive their direction. Receive their wisdom. And in doing so, you will do as 2 Peter 1.10 says. You will confirm your calling and election. Amen. Do that and you will grow. And you will mature in Christ. And you will become that which the mystery was meant to make you like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. You are so patient with us. And you patiently endure and suffer through our sin that go, our, our sinning against you. And, and by your grace and by your mercy, you endure for our sake and for your glory. And all of us here want to grow motivate us even more to take steps toward growth. Spending time in your word, spending time together with our spouse in your word, praying, praying with our spouse, praying with our children, praying with our brothers and sisters, praying together, serving one another, giving to each other, blessing each other with words of encouragement, strengthening each other, calling each other out when we're doing things we shouldn't be doing. Help us to, to, to dig into each other's lives and to receive and desire growth so we can be more like Christ. If we're not doing that, then what are we doing? So help us be that, help us do that, encourage us in that. Lord, if shame, if anyone here is feeling shame about not doing any of that, I pray your spirit would step in, grab shame, remove it from their mind and heart and replace it with the conviction and the encouragement of joy that comes with becoming like Christ and desiring to be like him. I pray this over your people, for your people, and for myself, Lord. We all need it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.